Today in the garage, we have Monty McGregor and Roland Moria. Monty McGregor was called to the bar in 2003 and is a principal at the criminal boutique firm of McGregor Moria LLP. Monty began his legal career working in corporate finance and securities at Gallings before moving to Toronto to practice criminal law and lecture at Seneca College on evidence, criminal law, and criminal procedure. Monty's practice involves representing people charged with extremely serious criminal matters. Monty is often requested to appear on national TV and radio programs to comment on cases with a view to educating the public and shining a light on the justice system. Roland Moria is also a principal at the criminal boutique firm of McGregor Moria LLP, where he represents clients charged with criminal code and CDSA offenses. Roland began his career at the office of the policy lawyer at the African Canadian Legal Clinic, during which time he was involved in litigating human rights cases at various boards and tribunals and participating in the preparation of and or appearing on interventions at various levels of court. Roland left the African Legal Clinic in 2007, at which time he began working with the McLeod Group, a boutique civil and criminal firm. He began his own practice in 2012 before joining McGregor Moria Horick LLP in 2018. Whether you're driving your Audi Q5, shredding your Stratocaster, or preparing a cross-examination, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. Monty, Royden, thank you for being here today in the garage. Hey, thanks for having us. It's good to be here. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So this is the first time we actually have um, the two co-principals of a firm together on, on the law garage. So why don't you tell us first how uh, your office came to be? I think it, I did I lose a... I think I lost a bet or something. <laughs> I'm just wondering how, how long uh, things before things just fall apart. And by the end of this podcast, we're no longer going to be principals at the same office. Yeah, it's going to be a fight outside. No, uh, I met uh, Royland when he worked with a very good friend of mine, Donald McLeod. I had done a couple of homicides with Donald, and that's how I met Royland. And uh, I think what happened was we had plans to become partners, and then it sort of fell apart. And then he just kept calling me, and he was like, hey, I'm really busy. Can you do this? Hey, I'm really busy. Can you do this? I said, why don't you just come over and we'll, uh, we'll work together. And he's got such a stellar reputation that uh, I just thought it would be really beneficial to, uh, to join up. And it's been great ever since. Yeah, Monty says that. But, you know, the reality is, is that he is way more busy than I am because I, I don't know anybody else that does as many murder cases in the course of one year in consecutive years. Um, but despite that, he continues to try to pretend that I'm the more busy of the, of the two of us. Uh, but it's true. Uh, I worked uh, at the McLeod Group. I was fortunate to work with Donald and um, through that met some very interesting and, and really very successful lawyers. And Monty had already really carved out a reputation for himself at that point in time, working with Donald and obviously on his own as well. And uh, we talked over the years. We'd always seen each other in court and, you know, always had a lot of respect for each other and the work that we'd done. And so I was lucky enough that he thought I was a decent enough guy that uh, he could work with me. So it's been pretty good. <laughs> he goes away on vacation and he gets 15 clients. He's like, he's away two weeks and they're like, it's, 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 uh, that's how busy he is. Sounds like you won the bet then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit about, um, Don McLeod as a trial lawyer, because I think a lot of our listeners, especially the younger listeners, um, only know him as a judge mm -hmm. or as a, mostly as a provincial court judge in the last several years that he's been up since he's been appointed to the bench. I don't think many right. remember um, his prowess as a trial lawyer. So either you want to comment on that. I, I, I do. It was because he was a fantastic trial lawyer. He, to me, epitomized what you would try to do when you're in court. And uh, when I used to teach advocacy, I'd say, you know, make sure you be yourself. And uh, he overflowed with charisma and uh, so I really enjoyed I had the opportunity. I met him when I was doing a very long murder that took about 10 or 11 months. And he had done three in the time frame. And he just kept back, coming back to court. And I remember seeing him saying, you can't be a lawyer. You're dressed too nice. He looks so cool. And then when he would go to court, <laughs> people would, his clients loved him. People that are in court loved him. I remember uh, Justice Actar when he was a crown, said to me at one point, he's like, uh, you know, people love you and Donald. And I was like, yeah, we try. <laughs> so uh, that was, Donald was a very powerful speaker and uh, very reminiscent of uh, like a Johnny Cochran type of person. I know he emulated him or maybe like a, almost like a Baptist minister, you know, very powerful <laughs> speaker. No. 
It, it's very interesting that Monty uses the Baptist minister analogy. My, my father was a Baptist minister, and um, I think you see that sometimes when you've grown up in the church. There is a certain level of um, gravitas, a certain level of presence that some of those people have, and you can tell that he's had that. A lot of people don't know that Donald um, uh, sang in a group for many years, and he has an amazing voice. I remember listening to him sing O Canada at the Canadian Association of Black Lawyers um, annual conference one year and was blown away. I thought he was a good trial lawyer until I heard him sing, and I thought, my God, what, what does this guy not do, yeah. right? But, you know, as Monty said, he always had that presence. And I remember working with him and him saying to me, you know, what's really important is that you go in and you control the courtroom, right? And as a young lawyer working with Donald, the first thing I thought was, well, easy for you to say, you're Donald. <laughs> right, of course. Right. It's true. I used, to, I used to say to him, I can't believe we're such good friends and I've never heard you sing, actually. So now yeah. that you say that, it makes me even more angry that I never had a chance to hear him. <laughs> but he really was, uh, he was one of those people that could control the courtroom. And that was one of the things that I think I, I always wanted to try to emulate from him is to go in and have that confidence and have that control that when you were in front of a judge or in front of a jury that they were they were caught up in whatever you wanted to say to them, right? And uh, Donald had that. Some people just have it, and he always did. Monty? Yeah, I mean, to me, those are the great trial lawyers that stand out are the ones that um, they have natural presence. I remember David Pachaco said that to me. He was my coach when I won the Arnup Cup trial moot way back in, like, 2001. And that's the thing that stands out. If I think of, like, the Liam O'Connors of the world, the people that John Struthers, if you've had a chance to be in court mm. with John, it's, it's you know, a whip-smart intelligence, a sense of humor, a bit of self-deprecation mm. sort of rolled into, a, you know, the jurors. You want them, from my view, if you want them to decide with you, you want them to want to take you to lunch or Absolutely. take you for a drink. And yes. those people that I've listed, including Donald, were certainly at the top of that list. How did you get into criminal law uh, starting from Gowling's? Well, it's funny because uh, when I went to law school, I loved criminal law. I loved law and order. Like, I would sit up with my mom, and, you know, we'd watch, like, two or three episodes in a row uh, when I was a kid, and I always loved criminal law. Um, and so when I went to law school, that was sort of my natural thought is that I'd do that. But I had come from business, and, uh, like, I had done two years in business before I got into law school. At that time, you could actually do just two years and get in, and I did. Um, so I knew a lot about corporate finance and banking and, and I was really lucky in first year way back then you didn't necessarily have a job after first year. And I did with, uh, a gentleman named Guy David, who was the first ever lawyer for the bank of Canada. So he certainly knew his stuff. He was the head of uh, the business department in Gowlings and nationally on the finance team. So I did that, but I honestly couldn't get out of bed and give a damn about finance. That's the problem. Like I would get like the financial <laughs> post and I'd try to read I'm like, ah, oh. I don't care about this. And so um, I had the really good fortune of having David Pachaco as a coach uh, in when, I, when he was a professor at uh, the University of Ottawa. And we had won the Arnup Cup trial moot, and then we'd gone to the Spinka Cup, which was a criminal trial. That was the nature of it. And uh, so when I decided to walk away from Gowlings, a couple of things happened. One, sadly, one of my best friends passed away of cancer at the age of 30, and I got to speak at his uh, funeral and it was probably the most rewarding thing I had done in my life at that point, maybe speak at my brother's wedding, but this was much, seemingly much more powerful. So when I did that, I thought, as I sat in my office overlooking Parliament, having virtually no impact on any, anyone from my view, I thought, is this really what I'm going to do? Because it paid well. I missed the finance insecurity, but I just couldn't do it. So I walked away from the job not knowing what I was going to do, and I ended up bouncing back into criminal law. And I had the opportunity to observe Mike Adelson, uh, from Edelson at that time, Edelson, uh, I think it was Edelson and Associates, but then he ended up partnering with Vince Clifford, who is in the Provincial Court of Justice now, and David Pachaco. I mean, I, I, I watched them and I was like, wow, you can do this and be respected, because uh, they were, by their opposition, by the police, by the people in court, by the people in the media. And I thought, this is what I want to do. And, and uh, Ottawa was never home for me, uh, so I moved to Toronto and uh, was virtually on my own very quickly. 
And um, that's how I got into criminal law. And, and it's funny because as I sit and do this podcast, I was a very bad radio announcer at one point. I got replaced by a computer. Uh, that's how good I was. And, but the thing was, I was only getting paid $5 an hour. So I thought I could do better than this. And it's actually translated into some of the best skill building, you know, care. Like that's where my, I think that's where my ability to just get up and talk and never shut up comes from. And because of that, criminal law is uh, really conducive to that. And I think it's, it's why I love it. Especially when you're uh, trying to bill by the hour. That's right. <laughs> Not on a legal aid rate, which is my <laughs> typical rate. So I'm not, uh, I'm not retired. I miss the finance and security. Let's be very clear. That Get was a, big case a hours different, a different world than criminal law. <laughs> no, uh, you know, I had a sort of a, a similar track as Monty. I, I had started out um, uh, in the same vein as him watching a lot of those shows growing up. And I remember watching Matlock and watching uh, Law and Order and, really liking those shows and liking those types of books because they were exciting. They were, they were always the most exciting shows. And, you know, because I was naive, you know, the lawyers seemed to have the most exciting lives. <laughs> so, so for me, I think that when I went into it, uh, you know, initially thinking about what I wanted to do, that that's what sort of drew me to it before I went to law school. Um, you know, took a couple of years off between undergrad and law school, um, after uh, my first year, I actually worked at a, a corporate firm. It was a large corporate firm in the Maritimes. That's where I grew up. And um, similar to Monty, after a summer of doing that, it was it was pretty clear to me that it wasn't necessarily my interest. My second year uh, after law school, I worked at the African Canadian Legal Clinic as a summer student, all test case litigation, the sort of stuff that made you understand how powerful the law could be and how it changes all the various aspects of our lives. And um, so I did that, but that was very specific work. It was all test case litigation. It was all sort of interventions, very different than actual criminal trial work. And I was fortunate um, because Donald actually was outside counsel for the clinic um, for years. I was able to work with him. And uh, when I decided to leave the clinic in 2007, within a couple of weeks of doing that, Donald said, well, why don't you come and work for me? He was obviously very busy, uh, and I was fortunate enough to basically start my practice in a perfect situation. And it's something that, you know, I, I certainly worry about for young counsel now. It's a much different world that we live in with COVID and, and trying to start a practice. But I was at the other end of the spectrum. I was able to come and work with a very, you know, respected lawyer uh, to basically leech off of his reputation to build my reputation uh, and to really be able to be around a lot of other very good lawyers and, and learn from them. Uh, so, you know, kind of went a little bit in the corporate route and always, I think, was going to get back to what my passion would be, which is criminal law, and I'm glad that I did. Well, when we look back at those early years of practice, uh, Monty, what, what stands out to you about those days and, and how it was to practice uh, as a young lawyer, especially in Toronto? It was so different than it is now. Toronto was, uh, I did an article in criminal. And uh, to arrive in Toronto and have multiple courthouses to go to, um, the one thing that stands out for me, which is probably still consistent today that was necessary then, was you could rely on other lawyers in criminal law to help you out. I mean, I remember going into 112 at Old City Hall when they used to do federal and provincial pleas, and it was so damn intimidating. Because they would have a hundred briefs on the table. Like all you could see was like this mountain of white briefs. And there would, it would be full of lawyers of all various ages and calibers and levels. And you'd be scared out of your mind going to work. And I, I was talking to a very good lawyer, David North, um, who, I, who was a mentor and a, who I have great respect for. Because I was saying, you know, when I started, we had the cell phones that flipped up and you had to, each number had three letters on it. He said to me, he said, Monty, when I started, you'd have to go to the courthouse and they'd say, now take a roll of quarters because after you were done your appearance, you'd have to use the Bell pay phones to call. And I, I mean, I think of getting big cases with VHS cassettes, mm. um, which some people probably haven't even owned VHS <laughs> that are listening to this, you know, and, uh, and I remember, you know, to me, I got great advice from another lawyer that said, you know, if the first five years don't kill you, 
you'll be fine, but you won't know anything for the first five years. So get ready. And that's, it takes five years to sort of start to feel that you're, you're, you're capable. And for me, um, the one thing that I can say is I've always been a terrible business person. I respect the people that, you know, so that's never changed, but I think starting out now must be so hard. It must Mm. be so difficult for new lawyers if they don't have people to very simply provide them work. Because back then, if you wanted to switch, legal aid would switch um, virtually as long as the client wanted a new lawyer and there was no great dispute, they would switch certificates very easily. You could also get certificates for low matters to cut your teeth and learn things. I mean, um, it was a very different time. And I think what we were talking before we started is that one of the saddest parts of this is that, you know, being in court and watching other lawyers and just wandering around the courthouse with what's happened with COVID and where we are currently, it's great to be more efficient. It's great to not have to, you know, leave your house to do a Zoom appearance, but that's why you do this job is the great collegiality that exists, the opportunity to see your friend at a course, but hey, and how are you doing? What are you doing today? What's your trial about? What's your issue? Can we want to grab a coffee afterwards? Um, because the one thing I find about criminal law is that it can really be a lone wolf type of as opposed to a big firm where it was where eight people would go for lunch every day it, it isn't that it, it, it just isn't that and it's very rare that you have the opportunity to do cases with your friends they come up but it's not uh it's certainly not an everyday occurrence so when it to me there are some significant gold threads of what you can do in this career that have somewhat evaporated because of the advancement of technology and the way they're it's now conducted well the three of us um we're at a 361 pretty much all spring long yeah. at various times. Right. Yeah. And it makes your life so much easier when you're waiting for a jury or just discussing your case. Like yeah. I felt like I knew all about your case, yeah, Monty. And I yeah. felt like Royland knew about my case. I knew right. about his case. We're just following it along loosely, but at least every day when you're there, oh, so what happened today? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't remember every single detail that the person will tell you, but you'll remember... Oh, this is what happened. This is what the witness did. This is what the judge did. Right. Yeah, and absolutely. it's a nice part of the job. Yeah. Like, the like whole... your mid trial application, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I bring up a mid trial application where it's like, uh, good luck with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, thank God that's not me. Yeah. <laughs> What's, uh, what about you when you, uh, from, from when you started right until now? I mean, we did a case early on together. Right? Yeah. So I remember that. I, I mean, I, I think the, the, the driving force behind most of my development in my early years was fear, <laughs> right? I, I think that what happens, and it's sort of similar to what Monty said about that first five years, is that I think, uh, at least for myself as young counsel, I spent a lot more time thinking about what I didn't know than what I had actually spent time preparing. And so I would have so many sleepless nights despite long hours during the day of working and making sure I knew everything I needed to know of just thinking about things and thinking about what maybe I didn't catch. What did I not do? What might be asked of me in court the next day that I'm not prepared for? And that sort of thing, I think, did two things aside from keeping me up at night. That's the first thing is that it did make me want to work really hard because when you're in court And when you're fortunate to work on cases with other lawyers, you see the level of advocacy that's required to be a good lawyer. And you want to be that, right? You see that and you want to be that. My first couple of years, I was a warm body on the terrorism case, uh, the Brampton 18 for Donald. And so, and I say a warm body because I knew nothing. (laughs) I knew where to sit. And you know what was great about that, though, was there were so many other lawyers that I was able to see the varying levels of advocacy and it was high levels of advocacy, but also to see the varying approaches to advocacy and the way that each lawyer sort of let their personality dictate how they dealt with cases. And so I think that was really good for me. So as Monty said, I I hope that younger lawyers get that because unfortunately with COVID, what they haven't had the chance to do is to have that collegiality, to have the opportunity to be in court and to observe and to be able to sort of get comfortable in that environment and in that space because that's the one thing that it takes time to do and only practice, only regular appearances and trials allow you to do that is to just be comfortable in that space and feel confident that you can actually 
um, reach the level of advocacy necessary to do justice for your client. It's true because I think all three of us had that benefit very early on to sit in on cases or work on cases where you saw a cross section of uh, lawyers from different styles and you can just sit there and observe and see what's working and what doesn't. Sometimes things don't work or sometimes things work for people who are more senior that might not work for somebody who's more junior. Mm -hmm. When we, so I, when I left the firm going back to Monty's point on the legal aid issue, I was able to take uh, one major file with me happens to be a robbery case. The Royal ended up on Monty and I were working out of King law chambers at the same time. So both of you were part of my life during that case, but that was my one piece of work that I knew it was a year away from the time that I left, but I knew if I can just make it to that trial, I'll have enough money mm-hmm. to continue with my practice because it was a large file, it was a big case managed file. And maybe now, nowadays that might not happen mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. younger lawyers. I think it's very hard for younger lawyers because they're not, because of the way the, payment structure is set up you know they can't they don't have enough experience to be to receive a certificate now that they don't give certificates out for lower matters and so how do you get that experience and how do you convince people that you're worth relying on to build the experience necessary to get on those cases i mean i have i have lots of lawyers i'm very fortunate that come to me and ask me for advice on how to approach cases and and but i've had recently people that are not qualified to get extremely serious matter certificates say, hey, would you do this murder with me so I can watch you do it and so I can learn from you and so I can be on it? And I'm like, yeah, sure, that's great for me because those are the cases that I love and I always like having other people on, but I find it annoying and unfair to those people that they're not afforded the right opportunity to build the skills because you know, that's where you have to start somewhere and you can't, you, you can't start where the government is qualifying people to start. It's just, it's, it, it's really just a, a difficult paradox to try and get past. Both and, you, sorry, go ahead. No, and, and I was just going to say, and, and the real concern about that is that that difficult paradox has a real impact on the level of advocacy that we see. Because what that unfortunately means is that young lawyers are not getting that uh, opportunity to build up their experience levels. I was really fortunate. I work with Donald and I could do things that were very serious and I could do things that were not so serious, right? Um, and when I left, Donald basically let me leave with multiple files. So I had no concern starting my own practice. So he was very good to me in that respect. And I'll always say that. I mean, there are lots of lawyers that have not had that opportunity and I had that. That, as Monty said, is really significant. Because ultimately, I think all of us want to see within our profession a certain level of advocacy because we understand how important this job is. And when younger lawyers are not afforded that opportunity because of financial constraints, it has an impact on the profession uh, generally. And so, you know, it's, it's something that we all have to consider. And I, I don't know what the answer is for it, but we do really need to figure out a way to deal with it so that we can maintain the level of advocacy that's required. Do you think that um, there, both, well, both of your practices as well as in part mine involve large uh, matters, mm-hmm. primarily large matters? I don't have a lot of large, like I don't have back-to-back murder clients, but I do probably a murder a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, a big file, at least one big file a year. And I know Monty and both Royal and Monty do a lot. Do you think young lawyers are going to ever develop those practices like that? I don't know. I mean, um, the, the, the problem that I find is that there's a disincentive to try and, uh, I'm, I'm not going to say be ethical, but usually if you try to narrow things down and focus on issues and, and, um, then you know you don't necessarily get rewarded. I mean, the big, one of the big downfalls of having a, I have I'm booked out until like 2024 with multiple murders, and I've had to argue with legal aid where I'm like, here I, I want a junior. And they're like, ah, you've done this. You're good at this. You don't need any help. I'm like, no, that's not what it's about. Good work gets rewarded, yeah. Monty. And it's <laughs> yes, like, and it's right. like I've got I got eight terabytes of disclosure here. Plus, this is going to help this younger lawyer get experience. Right. And so I always bring them on and I've had to do things like 
split paychecks and split court time. And to me, it's beneficial, one, because you're trying to serve your client better to make sure that everything's covered. You don't want to miss anything. And I am that type of lawyer that one of my biggest worries, I remember having a, a discussion with another lawyer who's known to be a little more difficult and we were talking back and forth. And I'm, always, I'm always afraid I make too many concessions. So Stephanie Boydell, who is a great friend of mine and was an exceptional lawyer, she's practicing up in Nunavut now. And, you know, she would be, we were doing a murder in front of Justice Trotter. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, Your Honor, this. And she'd be like, no, no, Monty, stop, stop, think about this. I'm like, oh, yeah. And I was like, you need that. You need to be able to lean on somebody. I mean, just like we call one another, Marco. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've called you numerous times because I respect your tactical brain when it comes to dealing with complex and difficult issues. And I was telling another lawyer doing a homicide today about a tactic that you discussed with me that was so successful uh, in one of your cases. And so, you know, that's what you need in this business because it can be all-consuming. It can You can get massive dumps of disclosure now. That's the other thing that's inconsistent with the past is that now... Uh, like the surveillance that's available on a large scale case mm. is uh, it's off the dial what, what you get provided and and to go to the government and say hey I need 200 hours just to review the surveillance they're like you don't need to review that just ask them what's important you know and it's it's really uh, as I said it's a it's an impro- it's an improper way to approach justice from my view we got to make sure that you don't just have a warm body there but you have somebody capable and qualified and that starts in you know we all start this business having impressions of oh this must be what court's like because i watched it on tv <laughs> and then you get there and you're like oh crap this isn't what it's like yeah. at all you know yeah. and and then you learn what's necessary to be methodical and slow and, and you realize nobody's friends with the defense that's right that's it that's it exactly it's yeah. like uh it's what do you like, think okay. Robin? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's. I, I think part of the issue, especially from a financial perspective, is that it, it is very short-sighted as well, right? Because I think that what you see with more senior and experienced lawyers is that we are better able to manage our time because as you start to do some of these larger cases and more complex cases, you are better able to go through what you need to go through and identify what you need to identify is important for the case. So when legal aid says, well, you know what, just um, you know, figure out what's important. Well, you know what? If that junior lawyer had an opportunity to work with a senior lawyer over the course of how many ever years on how many ever cases, think about how much better they would be at that, right? Mm-hmm. And think about what the savings would be both in time in court and also financially for the system as a whole, right? So, I mean, I, I do think that it's it's interesting and ironic that we, uh, you know, and I say we in the sense of the system as a whole is so short-sighted. It's about, well, how much can we save in this sort of short short term for this case versus how does ensuring that there's a certain level of advocacy and experience that potentially could be a more significant savings for the system as a whole in the future? Well, it always comes out of our, like, if we look at it that way, it always comes out of the lawyer's pockets. The, so the criminal a, lawyer's pockets, the defense not, lawyer. not, not on the other side. No, no, the, def- <laughs> the defense lawyer's pockets. Yeah. Because as a young lawyer, like thinking back to those early cases that I did that, you know, okay, you got a budget and it was great, but that budget was Nothing. always simply just a fraction of the <laughs> amount of time you put in because yeah. you wanted to do a good job and get it right. Yeah. Right. And now you're right. We have a little more, we have more experience. So we're able to probably do the work in the time allotted, but we always always go over. I, I, I don't think there's ever a legal aid file, yeah. especially a serious case where I can stand there and say, well, I did this whole trial and I stayed under hours or I hit the budget perfectly. I'm always way over. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I think it just goes to the idea that, you know, as we all know, as we start to do more complex cases, we just need more time because as Monty mm-hmm. said, there's so much more information that we're getting now. I mean, I think about what it takes for me to do a sex assault now versus what it was 10 years ago, right? And I do a lot of sex assaults. I probably have about four or five in, in any given year, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's exponentially more difficult and time-consuming now than it was even five or six years ago, right? And in murder cases, there's phone records, oh. data dumps, surveillance videos, all this time that... Yeah. You know, things get legal aid doesn't say, well, we're going to give you the X amount of dollars to look through, you know, the victim's cell phone for 
right. information. Meanwhile, you know, my articling student found critical piece of information that led to a mid-trial application that was ultimately dismissed. But yeah. nonetheless, that was a student work who, you know, you have to employ a student. The student has the time. They go through a little more critically, and then they might locate things. Another thing I just wanted to pick up on uh, something that Monty uh, was indicating is that this is the type of work that we do a lot of and it takes a toll on us. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah, so even though we're more able from a practical perspective to manage the content, you know, murder after murder, serious case or sex assaults, sex assaults are in my opinion, second to murder in terms of consequences to the client mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. for most of our things because people's lives get turned upside down for the rest of their lives. And so, you know, the stress that we go through, um, how do you cope with that when you're doing these well, big cases? It's funny that as the two, as both of you were just talking on this topic, the thing that was going through my head was the one thing that if you really give a damn about this business you care about is you don't want to miss anything. Right. You know, that's the problem with this is that given the massive amounts of information. And I've done large cases where it's like there's, well, I've got a homicide coming up where there's two provincial crowns, two federal crowns, and four OICs because of the nature of the case. And you're like, okay, I got me, and uh, and I got four bankers' boxes of information and uh, you know two, two hard drives or whatever. And so for me, coping with the stress, uh, I think I, because I, I, people say to me, you know, I can't do homicides or how do you do so many or... You know, I really believe in um, when I go into court, uh, I make sure that my client's always informed on what we're doing and so that they know. I always take the time to try and educate them with the nature of what we're doing. And unless they're intellectually incapable of appreciating what we're doing, I'm going to go and put the, the best job on the table. And, um, and I got to live with the consequences that as you do more serious cases, and I, I remember I've had the good fortune of being around the people that I consider, you know, the best homicide lawyers and, and, um, you know, John Rosen is a good example of uh, a person that I've had, I was a friend of mine and I've had time with. And, um, you know, you really appreciate what it is you're trying to do and what qualifies as a victory. I know there's a debate out there amongst our friends that are lawyers, what, what really qualifies as a victory. And a lot of times with a, a, a murder, it's, um, you're just trying to minimize damage and a victory is making sure that somebody doesn't get a life sentence or if they're guilty, it's making sure they're guilty of the right thing. And for me, you've got to have the appropriate outlets and you've got to take time off. And I'm guilty of this. And the one thing I really dislike about the practice now is that I've got to leave the hemisphere to be able to disconnect. It feels that way because of how, you know, how connected you are on your phone and how it's your own business. So if you don't do it, you know, if you don't have the resources to cover it, because if you have a predominantly legal aid practice like I do, you know, you can't necessarily afford to have two assistants and somebody going to cover all of your appearances. And if you can't do that, you, you know, you're going to break down and you're going to burn out. I, as we sit here and talk today, I don't mind sharing this. Sadly, I had a very serious uh, health uh, concern over the last uh, five weeks um, that's taken, required me to take some time off. And that's because I just had a uh, brutal six months where um, I was in court virtually every day on uh, one lengthy homicide, one homicide prelim, uh, a couple of homicide bails, and I effectively burnt out. I mean, I um, and, and and it affects your health. And 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 I've also had those cases where uh, one of the worst homicides I've ever done was out of Oshawa, where uh, a guy unfortunately stabbed and killed his nine-month pregnant wife. And uh, I remember Nyron Dwyer, who's uh, a good friend and an excellent judge, saying to me in a JPT, he's like, you know, Monty, maybe you have PTSD from this thing. And it can affect you if you're not able to compartmentalize it. If you, you got to have people close to you and you got to be able to, you got to be able to step away. I mean, I almost left law school when I was in business, uh, looking at a business career to open up a kickboxing gym. And um, that's always been an outlet for me is you got to go sweat off the stress and you got to recognize what your limits are and what you're doing. Otherwise, um, this career, and, and we know people, unfortunately, that have suffered because of it and uh, suffered greatly and, and, uh, you know, because it's, it's, it's easy to let this consume you. And it's hard when you don't have, for example, a partner that appreciates the nature of what you're doing. I mean, um, you have to have those type of outlets, people close to you, a way to relax, a way to burn off some steam and just time away to recharge. If you don't do that, I think you're prime because as I said, I've got, 
I think, uh, at least 10 homicides on the go now, all with other lawyers. Because as soon as I say that, I said that to, I think it was Justice Rutherford at a party. She said, Monty, that's too many. And I'm like, they're all done with decent people. You know, I've all, I'm sharing the burden. I'm not just doing it myself. So those are some of the approaches I take. And, uh, and um, that being said, I find, uh, you know, I still, I still, uh, you, I wake at night sometimes and you think, did I miss this or did I get that? I mean, I know Royland, you and I have talked about that. Those are the stresses. And I think they get easier, you know, with your experience and you start to appreciate I'm, I'm now I'm doing cases. I remember the old commoner saying this to me. He's like, well, I've got cases that go to the court of appeal. Like I do murder. So, you know, I just had a case at the Supreme Court of Canada. And part of the question was whether or not I had made a mistake. And that's oh, hard. That's hard. That's hard. Yeah. I got, I was in another murder trial and a friend of mine who's a crown texted me because the Supreme Court of Canada ended up deciding that everything that I had done was right. It's even worse. And that's what happened to me. And so, and so, and so what happens is they knew how much it bothered me. Like they are like, Hey, I know you've, you've been under stress for this thing for a year and a half. Your clients consequences uh, have been reinforced by the fact that you've done everything right. Exactly. That's right. And And you're like, like, am I happy? And I'm like, I'm happy because, you know, because you walk away going, did I mess this up? Did I miss something? Should I have done that? Because in the heat of the battle, you know, when you're amidst the gunfire. It's easy for Monday morning quarterbacks to look at, they're not living the trial. Mm. You're, when you're living the trial, you make your decisions in that moment. You can't second guess. And honestly, that leads to the stress. When you're, you mentioned that incident with Stephanie when she stopped you for a second, Monty. Yeah. It, I try to tell young lawyers all the time, look, especially in a jury trial, there's nothing wrong to say to the judge, I need a moment to consider Absolutely. that position. Yeah. I, I'll think about it over the lunch hour because you make, snap decisions where you you know think about it weigh it out talk to somebody about it maybe at lunch mm-hmm. you can make a call or you see a lawyer in the lounge and you have a conversation that helps alleviate some of the burden of making your making you feel like it's all always on you right. Roland, yeah, what do you no. do uh, i mean i think a lot of the things that monty said are the same things that i think about and i try to incorporate as well i mean i think the difficult thing is is when you're starting off it's it's fine to know those things. It's hard to put them into practice. And part of the reason for that is because, you know, it, it is the sort of profession where you're on the grind in your first few years, especially if you're out on your own. Uh, you know, as Monty said, we're often lone wolves, right? If we're fortunate, we have, a, you know, a small practice with another lawyer. Maybe you have a, you know, Monty and I are fortunate to have an associate, a paralegal who's excellent, Uh, And you need those people because those people allow you to be able to focus. And we know how hard that can be in this practice. So the the one thing I'll say to, to lawyers that are starting out in this practice is that it will consume you because the nature of this business is that you must think about it all the time. You don't just go home and say, all right, I'm done for the day. I'm not going to think about criminal law until eight o'clock tomorrow morning. It doesn't happen, right? We're thinking about it in the shower. We're thinking about it on the toilet. We're thinking about it when trying to push it out of our minds when we're trying to play with our children, right? Yeah, that's, uh, that's why the legal aid budget will never pay the retainer. Yeah, because <laughs> you can't shut it off. Yeah, so, you, right? you don't, right? It's not like that. I, I mean, I try not to ask my, my family members questions as if they're on trial, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's who you are now, right? Um, but as you, you know, I, I think the most important thing is to take time. Uh, what I found before I actually had started, uh, you know, the practice with Monty where we had a bit more supports is that I had a group of lawyers that we resolved that we would always assist each other. So if somebody was on vacation, we said, okay, here are the two lawyers that are going to take all your calls and deal with all your, your, uh, client issues. So you don't have to do it. That's right? important. Yeah. Uh, That's very important. You need to be able to like, just shut that off. And the best thing for me is when I'm on vacation, I turn on my, uh, vacation, um, message and I turn off the ability of my phone to take messages. So that's it. They call somebody else. You can't even leave a message for me. Right. Yeah, and you have to I, do that. And mm-hmm. it's easier if I have clients that are like, 
I know Royland. I respect Royland. I'll wait for Royland. I know it's harder if you're a young lawyer because mm-hmm. you're thinking like, shoot, they're going to call somebody else. So it's easy in some ways for me to say that. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. But do that if you can. The next thing is, is that you have to have other outlets, right? Uh, and that's important. I like going to the gym. That's my thing. I'm a gym rat. I've been a gym rat since I was in my late teens, and I will always be a gym rat. I sweat it out like Monty says, like he does. I know Monty's a gym rat too. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to put on my headphones. Don't talk to anybody. I don't want to make friends. I just want to go there, be in my own thoughts, have nobody bother me. Uh, the last thing, um, I've been involved in a few professional development seminars over the past couple of years. Um, Justice Band uh, um, has written some decisions that deal with, you know, this issue of PTSD and the impact that, you know, the type of profession that we are in has on our mental health. And so I do think that another thing that we all need to think about beyond all of those other things is to be cognizant of our mental health. Uh, Be aware of the fact that there are stresses uh, and there are issues within the context of this practice itself that sometimes might require professional help. And we can't be afraid to do that. It's important to have our colleagues, as we said, to be able to just sort of you know, vent with, you know, Marco and I vented, you know, in the spring about (laughs) cases, Monty and I vent all the time about cases, right? And so that's great. But, you know, be aware that sometimes your mental health requires more. And and sometimes it's important to be able to seek out that help, because ultimately, it'll, it'll help you as a professional, help you as a person, more importantly. That's, you know, that's a good point. I think that, you know, given um, Justice Strathy, Chief Justice Strathy's, uh, popular article that came out earlier in the spring about uh lawyers and the stress that we go through litigators actually and the stress that Mm -hmm. we go through in court it really drew that attention it's getting some popular attention in the in the media about you know chief justice comes down and says we got to be mindful of of our own mental health Mm -hmm. um i think what they forget is that it doesn't start if it doesn't start with the court it's kind of hard for us you know, we, you know, judge says, get, give me a factum for tomorrow or you're going to have to spend your weekend doing something. It's hard to, you know, litigation, that's the beast of the litigation, right? There's pressure pull factors from all angles. Right, right. And, and I mean, I think part of it too, and it, it's something that we all struggle with is that those various things that we can do may vary depending on where we are in a given year. So, you know, as Monty said, he went through a very, difficult six months of of uh cases uh and you know we were sort of in 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 uh, swimming the, the same sort of currents at the you know at the time and during those times i you know i know that i'm not taking the time i need i know i'm not sleeping as much as i should but it's still important that at some point in time you've got to scale it back and you've got to figure out what your point is and i think that that's so important is to, to kind of know yourself right because you know, it's fine for other people to say this is what you need to do, but at some point you need to say, you know what, I just need some time for me. And quite frankly, by the end of June, I'm not a really nice person to be around anyway because I'm probably just a little bit short on the, uh, you know, uh, on the fuse. Uh, and I know, <laughs> you know, that this is the time Agreed. needed to just step back, right? Agreed. And the, and the hard part is the way we schedule things. Oh. In, in all reality, when you're like, okay, uh, who's available next November? I mean, that's the way, because mm-hmm. I'm booking things that are like four and five weeks at a time or eight weeks at a time. They're like, okay, who's good? Uh, how about next June? And then you're like, oh, I want to have the <laughs> yeah. vacation. I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll say I'm available. And then all of a sudden you look at your calendar like, oh my God, I don't have a day off. And you go back to back trials or back to back matters. And then you're in the matter and you're like, yeah, I got to start that thing next week because I was stupid enough not to be cognizant of the scheduling when I conceded to doing it. And, uh, and, uh, it's having the ability to, you know, be really organized. And, the, we're and getting a no. lot more pressure though, from the courts with scheduling, especially on, you know, long, the people like us who do longer matters because mm-hmm. there's, there's so many factors. There's lawyers involved, judge involved, court schedule involved, Um, you know, having to schedule a meeting to schedule a matter, that is not something, you know, out of the past, like to actually, I think in Brampton now you're waiting three to four weeks to schedule a meeting and and it's because they could, they could use two other courthouses out there and they'd still have an overflow of work and, and then it gets dropped down on the judges and there's a trickle down effect. So to me, it's really a a natural pressure cooker based on all of the lack of resources and, and, and what you're trying to achieve. The other thing I want to address from a business perspective and doing these larger matters now that you brought up the scheduling is this 
you book something a year in advance, if it resolves on the day of or the week before, from a business perspective, and you were banking on... <laughs> yeah, I get crushed. Yeah, you're no, banking you get... on a month or two months of court, court time. Yeah. Right? Like that's paying a lot of your bills. And if it goes down, you know, how do you deal with that one? Well, that's what, ha- that's what happens. That's what I meant. I, you don't try to say it's a, you know, there's no incentive to be ethical. That's not what I mean because you always do the right thing for the client. But how many times have I been like, I had a, a prelim on a first degree murder set for three weeks and you cross the first witness and then the crown comes out and says to me, will your client still take manslaughter in four years? I'm like, yes. I didn't even talk to them. I'm like, yes, they will. They need three weeks to think about That's it. That's right. Keep, keep, calling, keep calling your witness. Can we exactly. come back every day? Exactly. And you sort of hold on to the fact you're like, okay, I'm good. Other people call. Maybe something will come up. Right. You know, and the good one, the one unfortunate reality of our business too is that bail hearings do come along and often because it's this push and pull where you're like, okay, I got a big case and what's the chance of resolving? And, and, but you schedule it like, this is what I mean. If you, if you throw yourself into the deep end, you're going to go schedule the matter no matter what. And if you get the opportunity to resolve it in advance, and I've done that, I've taken over, I've taken over trials. As I said, this is where I, I'm concerned that I concede because, you know, I was telling my clients, there's two stages in the prosecution. First, do they identify you doing the act? And then second, is there a justification when it comes down to mostly what I do? And if they pass, you know, the first threshold, then what are we really looking here for number two? So I've taken over murder trials that were set for five or six weeks. And I look at my client, and I'm like, look, this is how we evaluate your ID. And there are seven circumstantial ways to do it. And we can play it out in front of the jury and they can learn all of these bad things about you. And, you know, the question is whether or not I'm going to, because you can't, you know, from the great John Rosen, it's like, once you start, it's either you're not the person or this is why, you know, if you go up yeah, one, absolutely. you go up one part of the mountain, you can't come yeah, back down and yeah. go up the other side. You know, I remember him doing that in front of a client we had in, uh, we had co-accused in Hamilton on a murder. And I'm like, this is a lesson for a litigator's lesson of life right here yeah. is that you don't, you know, you don't throw everything on the wall. That's not my approach. I, you know, I take the, uh, what is it? The blitzkrieg method. It's, you know, take the spear and drive it at the weakest part of the, of the line and try to, you know, circle your, your enemy. And so when you're doing that, like I've taken over six weeks trials and taken them down to a week or four days. And these are, we need these three witnesses. Right. And then even then, then it's like, how about we on the Friday, you call the crown cause you know them. And you're like, Hey man, look, I could win this and you could win this. It's a second degree murder or manslaughter. Why don't you give him a manslaughter and a, a relatively higher number? And it's like, okay, I'll think about it. Calls you back an hour later. Okay. Of course. And then you get no paycheck from the government. You're just like, <laughs> yeah. they're just like, that was great. Go do another one. Here you go. Great advocacy. And you're just like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. Yeah, the, that's very true. That yeah. is yeah. very true. And, and it is, it is, you're still advocating and you're working just as hard yeah. getting to that result. Yeah. Um, and, and you're that, saving your client for a life sentence. And like that's the really yeah. more you, well, you joke around about being ethical, but the real thing is we're always looking out for the best interests of our mm-hmm. clients. Always. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. yeah. Right. I, I mean, I, I always, I always say to people that we're always actively working against our own financial best interest. That's right. Exactly. It's, 100%. That's it. exactly. it's what we do. We don't even think about our financial best interest because ultimately what it's about is to do the best that we can for our clients. And ultimately, that also helps with our financial interest because there's a reason that Monty has this many cases. That's right. Right? Yeah. It's because at the end of the day, those people were very happy with their outcomes, right? Even those people that went to jail for a very long time because they knew that whatever needed to be done and could be done was done and they would trust him again to do it, right? Yeah, and it's, and a, so, it's a long-term it. plan. Yeah. It, it is. Okay. Right? If you're going to be short-sighted on one case to try to maximize the money you can make on the one case you're going to lose long term yeah. agreed i remember uh i remember uh mike adelson but he's, he's still considered to be like the best lawyer i ever watched where he was like look if you do a good job the money will come and you know because i ask everybody that calls me where'd you get my name mm-hmm. oh yeah where'd you get my name yeah and it's like oh this guy or that guy or this you know this reporter in court or this clerk this or this crown or knows? this judge or, yeah. or this police officer absolutely you know and that's that's comes from usually how they've watched you in the battlefield and yeah. that to me is the greatest sign of respect i ask it of everybody that calls me yeah it's not because of my stellar our stellar website which is outdated with all the wrong labels and addresses and <laughs> yeah. yeah it's no. it's because of how you perform so yeah. so you always make those choices despite the fact that you as you said like i think of uh wasn't it jane kreba that you were on that was set for a number of months and then right at the front end like didn't they i remember how the basketball murder that i was on with some yeah. great lawyers and we were there was like 
God, there were like seven of us. And then I think they end up going ahead with two. Yeah, um, that's what happened also on that Kriba case. But yeah. I, my guy was one of the guys that kept going. Ah, okay. But but yes, a bunch of people's were were you know acquitted after the pretrial motions. Right. Mm-hmm. You were doing that with Ed Sapiano, right? Ed, I was not working with that. He had a co-accused. His client resolved. Right. Um, after the pretrial applications. Speaking of like the greatest of great lawyers, one, Edward, one of the best. Ed, yeah, Ed Sapiano. If, uh, yeah. and it's a shame if uh, new lawyers, you know ask somebody for an Ed Sapiano story if you have the chance and uh, it'll be a great story. Do you have any rituals that you take into battle with you in any of these cases? Either of you? I do. I'm very, I'm very much like if you played competitive sports, like you don't shave the beard. Not that I've ever been able to grow a beard, but if you, so for me, I always park in the exact same spot. Are you saying you didn't make the playoffs, Monty? Yeah. Well, let's just say I can't, I played in the playoffs. I just, I can't grow a beard. As you can still tell, as you can still tell, it's still a challenge despite my nearing 50. But uh, no, I always park in the exact same spot. And if somebody's in my spot, I always park in at 361. I always park in polar bear level three there's like a grill there and if somebody's in my spot i'm like i'm not gonna have a good day i'm not gonna win this case i'm not gonna win this appeal um and one thing that's funny is uh as i said i almost quit a lot of you know open a kickboxing gym and an mma gym so when i'm in court i always shadow box i stand there and i'm in my robes and i'm uh shadow boxing everybody eventually will be like what's with the crazy guy standing up over there? And usually it's when I'm waiting to cross-examine someone. So if a witness is in there, I'm like, oh yeah, let's step outside and we'll, you know, we'll have trial by combat after this. So I do <laughs> certainly, uh, I certainly have uh, weird, and, and uh, uh, I'm trying to think of any others, but that's usually it for me. You know, I never told you, but a lot of young lawyers ask me, what's the name of that guy who flings his robe every time he stands up? Oh. <laughs> I said it's Monty. <laughs> yeah. Monty. He thinks he's a superhero. That's right. That's right. <laughs> as close as he's going to get to a cape. <laughs> the, truth is, <laughs> the truth is I get caught on that damn chair. Exactly. Then, you know, with the chair. exactly. I, you see me pulling out of my stupid church. Those, those chairs at 361 now, the backs and the seats separate. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. your robe gets stuck in the back of the seat. <laughs> That's true. Royland, what about you? Any rituals before you go in? I mean, I, I don't think I have any specific uh, superstitions like Monty might have. But I think rituals for me are just, I'm an early morning person and I think it just sort of gets my day started better. So I'm the kind of person that I'm out of the house at like 6.15, 6.30. I'm in a coffee shop by like 7.15. And I just want to just ease into my day. I don't understand people that can run into court at 10 o'clock. I think it's the most impressive thing in the world, but it's just not me. Because if I do that, I, I just don't have that skill level. I, as I say, I, I don't have that intelligence. I have to... <laughs> slowly ease my way into my day think about all the things that i need to do so i need to have my espresso i need to be able to sit down i need to be able to think about what i'm going to do organize my day and i find that that just makes it go that much better for me and the other thing is that i'm just not an eater during the during the day in court i don't know what it is but i'll just drink water all day but not eat that's true you don't eat and you should have shares in Starbucks. Whenever, like, we, I talk to Daniel or so, I said, like, where's Ron? He's like, where, what courthouse is he at? Go to the nearest Starbucks. Because he <laughs> should probably have, it. He's, he's given them enough money that uh, he should own one or two of them, yeah. actually, at this point. You know, I agree, I, I agree <laughs> with Royal in terms of the early morning to it. You know, I, before COVID, for me, it was always to go to the gym in the morning, mm. first thing. Because it's just, I want to be by myself. I want to put my headphones in. I don't go to the gym. It's not a social environment for me. Then since COVID, you know, the gym's become a little more difficult to get to. So working out, I still work out at home, but I need to get up early and have that morning time for myself. Right. An hour or two just before you get your day started. So by the time I get to court, it's like I've already finished the first, you know, one sixth of my day. day. Right. So your mind is already engaged. And that's an important part of your day because one of the things that both of us have talked about in terms of that, Marco, is the the need to have that time for yourself because everything else we do for the rest of the day usually involves time for other people. That's right. Right? Yeah. Somebody else is calling me about something that they need me to do for them or something to do on something else that has nothing to do with me. So it's so important to just have that time for myself to be able to sort of be in my own mind and then say, okay, now let me sort of give everything to everybody else for the next, you know, 20 hours or so, 18 hours of the day. But it's funny because I, everybody says, oh, I lose sleep at night thinking about a case. But in the morning time, I find I'm not 
necessarily thinking about a case or I can mm. easily allow my, it's morning, you wake up, you spend that time for yourself. Right. Then by the time you start thinking about the case, even if you take that with you all the way to bedtime, you're mm-hmm. right. You've spent that time for yourself and you got that mm-hmm. out of the way. So that's important. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm always like running in late and I'm that person that's like, you know, they're calling your name over the... <laughs> Well, even oh, look, just because I'm awake early. Mr. McGregor to courtroom four or five, or, just and you're just like, ah, oh, sh- again, shit, I'm just, late again. Just because I'm awake early, it doesn't mean I'm in court early. You know, and then the problem, too, with big cases like this is like, yeah. when is your JPT time? It's got to be nine o'clock while you're in the car. And then the now, uh, I find it's really funny when the judge is like, are you driving? No, I'm no, I'm not. I'm pulling over, Your Honor. Okay, because we don't want you to drive. I know, I know. We don't want to drive. I'm going to be late, you understand. We don't do this. I got to be doing six things at once here. So, you know, the thing I don't understand is as much as I may be persuasive in court, how I've never been able to persuade my doctor to give me attention deficit disorder medication. How is that not possible? Like, you know, every time I go, because I got to be doing six things Ask at a once. client. That's right. <laughs> All right, Jason, edit that out. Okay, Monty, what lawyer do you feel privileged to have seen litigate before the end of their career? Or alternatively, what lawyer do you wish you had an opportunity to observe before they retired and died? I've seen some great lawyers, but the one that I did see, now it was at the end of his career, was Marshall Sack. And I was really lucky when I came to Toronto. There were some great lawyers like... David Cohen and Marty Kerbel, Adam Bonney, that helped me out. And they always talked about Marshall Sack in his prime as the lawyer. Because for me, um, the one thing I've always wanted to do is I've always wanted to be the best in court. And they said he was the one. And I, when you talk to Marshall, first of all, he was always dressed like he would have like a three-piece suit and a gold watch on a chain. And he was always very elegant with his long uh, gray ponytail and his voice. Uh, was very powerful. And, and I say that like I've seen lots of great lawyers and it's a shame in our business that you don't have the opportunity to see them as much. If you've seen Liam O'Connor, as I said, John Struthers, um, you know, I've seen Marie. Uh, I just even, you just say her name, Marie. Um, but Marshall Sack, in his prime, I would have given anything to have watched it because the people that watched him at the time talked about how it was a different experience. And when you think of the lawyer's you know, to me, all the great lawyers that you ever think of are usually defense lawyers that are written about, like Robinette or, you know, ones from the States. It's because of the nature of the job we do. And I would have loved to have seen Marshall, you know, question like the civilian witness that says they see the murder. I mean, those are, those are the things you, for me that I would have, I would give anything to see. Isn't it funny that you would hear stories of Marshall Sack from, for instance, you mentioned David Cohn, who I've had the opportunity mm-hmm. to share an office space with for some six, seven years now. David, who worked with Marshall Sack as a junior to him, has done 117 jury trials in his career. Yeah. And he he keeps all his agenda books that are all nice. They look like bench books, you know, those styles mm-hmm. with the hard, so you could put them on a bookshelf. He doesn't do that, but he was showing me once. And I'm thinking, I have... Because people always say to me, oh, you do a lot of jury trials, do a lot of jury trials. Well, I have a resource right next to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 117 jury trials. And he's the one telling me about his uh, ability to learn from Marshall Sack. Yeah, exactly. And so we forget that there's this whole level of the bar of those types of lawyers that are getting to that point in their career. And I think during COVID have kind of slowed down their career a lot that have the opportunity to continue to pass on these um, legendary stories from these people. Yeah, there's just a level of respect that comes with your reputation. And for me, that's what I've always tried to aspire to. Because as you said, I saw Mike Adelson, who was like, he'd walk in and be like Darth Vader walking into a room, you know, um, cool, intimidating, but respected. He represented you know, police when they did wrongful acts and then he represented the worst people or going to court and having the judge look at, you know, somebody saying, you know, Mr. Pachaco, you know, it's good to see you again in court, sir. Like, that's what I always aspired to or it's like, mm. oh, I've heard about you or we're going to respect what you say or, you know, I've been good. I've had good fortune when Justice Trotter was a trial judge. He's like, you know, he says, you know, Mr. McGregor, because you're saying this, you know, I'd normally research this, but I'm going to I think you are correct in the way you're assessing it. And then to, at the end, have them look at the jury and say, you know, you've had the best to see what the system has to offer here. I mean, that for me is everything, like, uh, as, as to why I do this. I just, I just think it's such a unique job 
that you can have over such interesting material and to be able to get up and speak, you know, and, and give those powerful speeches that they write about in movies and TV. Like that's what it's about. And, and those types of people to me, like the names we mentioned, Ed Sapiano, like, uh, taking on justice, U.S. check, like to be in that court at that time would have been, you know, just incredible <laughs> to bear witness to the courage that it would take and, and the sharp and intellectual way that he would, yeah, you know, present that argument. I mean, these are the things that I think about when I think about the best parts of our career. Royland, same question. Well, I mean, you know, Monty answered the same uh, way that I would have, right? Uh, you know, I was fortunate to work with Donald. Uh, Donald worked with, uh, with Ed Sapiano as well. Uh, and I remember, as I said, working on that terrorism case and seeing so many great lawyers. I think three or four of them now are actually appointed as judges uh, from that case. Uh, and, you know, so I was fortunate to see some of the best, and, and I was also fortunate to see Marshall. And I think the one thing that always struck me, and maybe it was because it was what I thought of being a criminal lawyer would be um, when I saw those shows and I read those books, which was that that person strides into court. And when they stride into court, everything stops because everyone wants to see what they're going to do. Right. You don't see too many of those red barrister robe bags, uh, right? the yes, QC exactly. bag, right? Oh, like, my goodness. Marshall would have that. I heard they, well, you know, they still have them in other provinces. And I heard uh, uh, a friend of ours, Nathan Gorham, got QC'd out east because he does practice in the Maritimes, too, which I just think is fantastic. It's a shame. I mean, to me, I think our, I think our system does better. Like, one of the reasons I like going on the media is because I don't think, I think our system needs help being understood and appreciated by right. the lay people in our society that don't otherwise appreciate it. And, and uh, that to me is one of the ways to acknowledge the people that deserve the recognition, you know? So you're right. Uh, the, Marshall. The, the first time yeah. I saw Marshall was in uh, probably coming up from the third floor polar bear yeah, parking yeah. lot <laughs> under, under uh, city hall in the elevator. And I saw this red bag and I said, why is this bag red? Yeah. And yeah. I remember asking my principal at the time, I saw this lawyer carrying a red bag. Oh, that's QC. That means QC. Yeah. 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 Really? He no. always had presence. Even if you see him and if you saw him in a coffee shop, you know, it yeah. was always like, oh, he's just elegance it, and, uh, and as I said, sharp wit, you know. That voice though, like that's, I remember Monty, mm-hmm. I, I remember, I, and I can't even recall whether, I think he was making submissions on a pretrial application on something. And he just has this presence and then he would have this voice and, you know, you were just drawn and you couldn't, you couldn't stop listening to him. Right. And I, I just, I'd never seen him actually in front of a jury, but I can only imagine. And I mean, I saw some very good lawyers in front of juries and Donald was an excellent lawyer in front of juries. Right. Absolutely. You know, some of them just have this ability to just be able to connect Right. And I can just imagine how it would be very difficult for anybody listening to Marshall Sack to say, you know what? I don't agree with you. Right. I just had that ability. Did see him uh, do a jury trial on a a homicide case at 361 University. The Rango case? Was that the the, the last one? Exactly. Exactly. That's the one. I was trying to think of who the. Yeah. The, yeah, it was like a boyfriend girlfriend, yeah, murder, right? Yeah, so, that was, I remember. Wrinkle. I remember. Uh, see, that's a great thing. That's what I mean. Like, if you're in court, that's the thing where if you're on a break. I mean, that's how I watch Liam O'Connor. Let's be honest. It's like I'm guys, on a break we, and wander we, in. We find. I mean, I feel like 361 is my home court. Yeah, that's yeah. always home to me. It's home home court, yeah, right? Absolutely. I feel like when I go to even provincial city hall or any of the other courts even when i'm in brampton it's like i'm i'm, I'm on an away game yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. i don't mind yeah, i go yeah. and i got I, we've all done cases all over yeah. that's right break when, the home court's heart that's all right yeah that's yeah, right. yeah absolutely yeah. well yeah. i remember i was wandering through it with a friend of mine sean robichaud and we started at the lawyer's lounge and uh and he had his mom with him and we were gonna go have lunch at uh, the law society so as we were walking through um you know i, I just know so many people there because i spent so much time there that by the time we got to the restaurant, Sean's mom looks at me and goes, geez, Monty, I think you should run for office based on what happened walking <laughs> through the courthouse. And that's funny because whenever I tried to get out of the courthouse, I'm always, I would look at my assistant or whatever and I'd say, okay, now don't let me talk to anybody. And they'd be like, shut up. You know, that's not that you're going to, because I'd be like, guards, hey, how are you doing? Hey. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's so great. I love being there. Nobody knew more people than at the courthouse than David Fisher. Yeah, right? yeah, David yeah. Fisher <laughs> spent the first hour of every day saying good morning yeah, to yeah, everybody. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I never thought to myself that that would be me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then now from the door yeah. to the yeah. lawyer's lounge. It's, oh, from the morning. time you're hitting security, you're talking to the staff there. And then you're talking yeah. to the clerks and you're talking to the staff, at, you know, in the office. It's just, I, I yeah. took it as a real badge of honor that I was doing a very long case there with a senior lawyer. So I was the junior on it. And every time we'd go through the front security, you know, as far as ID, they never asked me for ID. They're like, hey, Mr. McGregor, how are you doing? And he'd been a lawyer for yeah. like 20 years. <laughs> and every time they'd be like, sir. And he'd be like, give me the card. And all it took was be like, hey, guys, how are you doing? And yeah. it's just like, isn't it a great day to be in court? You know, it's just, just as I said, it's, it's like a second home. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Monty McGregor and Roland Moria. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come to La Garage and share your experiences with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms, and I believe there's something to gain just from talking to our colleagues. Before we leave, is there anything either of you would like to plug? No, honestly, like, thanks for having us. This is a fantastic resource, as I said. And if anybody, anytime anybody calls me and wants advice or like, I'm always like, yeah, let's talk law, blah, blah, blah. This is great. I think this should happen more often. And Marco, you do an excellent job. I'd like to plug this show. It's excellent. If you have an opportunity to be on, take it. Uh, and if anybody listening wants to give me a call and ask me a question, please do it. Thank you. Absolutely. And, you know, I agree with Monty. I think one of the things that we've lost uh, over the course of the last couple of years for COVID, certainly for younger lawyers, but but for all lawyers, is the opportunity to just have these chances to just sit down and chat, right? I think that that's one thing that we take for granted, but it's also something that all of us really enjoy about the practice is that we we do have a very collegial bar. We have a bar that's been able to help all of us get to the level that we are at right now, and not just the lawyers, the staff at the courthouses, everybody that sort of made the experience that we've had in this practice as good as as it has been. So, um, you know, thank you for having me on. It's it's an honor, actually, right? When I think about all the other lawyers that have actually been on your podcast and have had an opportunity to share their experiences, and, you know, I hope that some of my experiences will, you know, help that next generation of lawyer that's starting out and looking to sort of carve a space for themselves. Uh, in terms of things to plug, um, aside from the show, uh, you know, uh, there are often times when clients are going to have to make charitable donations, and I always say it's best if you can do so um, within your community. I work with a lot of uh, clients that are from the East Toronto Scarborough community, and um, I have a family member that works at the East Scarborough Boys and Girls Club, and I know they do a lot of good work. So if there's ever a chance that you get uh, that you have a client that needs to make a donation, think about making a donation to them. Um, uh, and um, that's something that you can do to give back to a lot of the youth in the community. Thanks, Rolla. That's a good idea. Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out our back catalog and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Zdow, Remy Sansawal, and Matthew Takamatsu. The Law Garage is a J. Mike podcast production.